Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I bring you a Welcome to the History of Ireland. Early on the 2nd of December, Arthur Griffith was hurrying back to Dublin with Eamon Duggan. The British had handed over a draft treaty the night before and wanted to hear the Irish delegation's answer on Tuesday the 6th. The only copy the Irish had of the plans were sitting in Griffith's battered and worn old briefcase. The Irish now had four days before they would have to make the most important decision of their lives. All the plenipotentiaries were tired, stressed, and felt very near breaking point. As Collins wrote, he was in a very troubled state of mind, plagued by all the little wrongs I may have done, people. Griffith's answer to this stress was chess. On the train from London to Hollyhead, where he'd be getting that ferry back to Dublin, he started playing chess with a young legal aide. He played game after game after game, only taking a small break to grab breakfast in the dining car. Now, the train was, quote, swarming with journalists coming over to Dublin to report on the results of the cabinet meeting. And as it arrived in the station, Griffith and the aide tidied up their chess pieces and got ready to go. Suddenly, Griffith noticed his briefcase was missing. A furious search began with men running up and down the length of the train. This was arguably one of the most important documents in Irish history, and it was currently missing in a train full of reporters who would be dying to get their hands on it. As you can imagine, this did not help Griffith's stress level. In the end, it was actually a senior British civil servant who'd been sent along to keep track of the cabinet debate who found the briefcase, quote, reclining on a rack in the dining car. Griffith, in a state of excitement, was more than pleased to get this very, very important old briefcase back in his hands. Whew, so not a great trip for Griffith. However, things went even worse for Collins and the other delegates on their trip over. You see, Collins and the others had stayed in London on Friday night for a fairly inconsequential meeting on finances. This meant that they didn't leave Hollyhead until 3am on Saturday morning and had to take a mail boat 
with the aim of getting to Dublin in time for the 11am cabinet meeting. Now, the captain, maybe keen to show off his new ship and eager to impress his fancy passengers, decided to go full speed ahead, right up until he crashed into another ship making the crossing in the other direction. It was a pretty serious collision and three crew members died. Now you might remember we briefly mentioned this during our episode on the propaganda surrounding Collins. And the newspapers loved this story. As it goes, the corkman worked hard to lower the lifeboats into the water, saying, I've been in tighter corners than this and got out of them. People loved it and used it to further the narrative of the gallant Irish leader. Oh, also, one fun little bit of trivia is that John Ford, the director of The Quiet Man, was on the ship. Now, the newspapers might have loved it, but I imagine the delegates were none too pleased. The mailboat had to return to Hollyhead, and after a chaotic night, the delegates left again at 7.50am, arriving in Dublin at 10.30. Now they only had 30 minutes to rush across town to get to the meeting. Seriously, if this shit was in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. The historian Packenham describes the delegates, saying they were a desperately tired and haggard little party when they arrived at the mansion house. And unfortunately for the lads, this cabinet meeting was not going to be a short one, nor an enjoyable one. The night before, Griffith, presumably holding on very tightly to his battered old briefcase, had delivered the draft treaty to De Valera. Dev was not a fan, and the two men had argued long into the night. This set the stage for a mammoth cabinet meeting. Now, you can literally Google the minutes of this meeting, and it's a fascinating read. The meeting kicked off with Griffith declaring that it was either this treaty or, quote, fresh war. But immediately, Barton disagreed. He thought, quote, England's last word had not been reached and that there was no way she would wage war on the question of allegiance. Duffy backed him up, saying, England was bluffing. The Irish proposals with small reservations on defence could be obtained. Duggan, however, was in Griffith's camp, declaring that I could not bear the responsibility of saying no. Collins kept his cards close to his chest. Though as per usual, he was closer aligned to Griffith and Duggan's thinking. He argued that the non-acceptance of a treaty would be a gamble, as England could arrange a war in Ireland within a week. He also pointed out that the contentious oath wouldn't come into effect for 12 months, and there might be a chance to renegotiate it. He saw it as nothing more than sugarcoating to enable the English people to swallow the pill of Irish independence. But from there, things took a bit of a turn for the worst. Thanks to my old favourite, Cahill Brewer. 
Brewer jumped in to ask why the delegation had split so that Griffith and Collins did most of the work. He argued that the British had selected its men. Helpful as ever was Brewer, and this did not go down well at all with Griffith or Collins. Dev tried to steer the conversation back to more useful ground and made his position clear. The president said, I personally could not subscribe to the oath of allegiance, nor could I sign any document which would give North East Ulster power to vote itself out of the Irish Free State. And then, in what is getting very familiar, Dev argued again for external association. Jesus, man, let it go. He stated that the delegation had done their utmost, and now it remained to them to show that they were prepared to face the consequences. War or no war. But despite this brinkmanship, he did suggest an amendment to the oath, one that he would be happy with. It said this, I do solemnly swear true faith and allegiance to the constitution of the Irish Free State, to the Treaty of Association, and to recognise the King of Great Britain as head of associated states. This was an important change, as it was not an oath to the king, but instead positioned him simply as head of associated states. Not a commonwealth, not an empire, but associated states, whatever that meant. Griffith knew this wouldn't fly, and stated, I will not take the responsibility of breaking on the crown. Brewer shouted back, Don't you realize that if you sign this thing, you will split Ireland from top to bottom? And from there, things never really got any better. Overall, the cabinet meeting lasted six hours. And Collins would later explain that all that was reached were impressions rather than conclusions. You'll also note that there was very, very little discussion of a boundary commission or anything resembling that solution. Everyone was obsessed with the oath in the cabinet meeting. The delegates had to rush back to London, immediately leaving the meeting and getting back on a boat. Collins even wrote that there wasn't time for tea. Shock, horror, oh no. One thing I want to point out, though, was that during breaks in the cabinet meeting, Collins did have time to quickly shore up the support of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the secret organisation that he was president of. They were worried about the oath as well, saying it would not satisfy the fighting men. And so they came up with their own oath, one that differed slightly from the British version and from Debs. This meant that, as Freeman puts it, Collins embarked under the impression that aside from the oath and a number of other specified amendments, the document would pass muster with the IRB. Now, 
the IRB was so influential that this kind of gave Colin support of the doll, even without backing of Dev or the cabinet. Freeman continues saying, such secretive behaviour lay at the heart of de Valera's mistrust of his younger, more captivating rival. Remember, Dev hated secret organisations, especially the IRB. And it must be said that what Collins was doing was far from democratic. One other thing that was discussed in the cabinet meeting, kind of as per usual now, was whether or not Dev would come to London. Remember, these were the last few days of the treaty. And of course, the delegates and Dev did not know this yet, but they did have a sense that things were drawing to a close. But, as per usual, he refused. And in fact, Dev went one further. As the delegates took the boat east, Dev went west, heading back to the west coast of Ireland to continue to inspect the IRA forces. It's baffling to me that Dev would put another half a day's travel between himself and London. He made himself even harder to contact. A decision that would have a huge impact in a few days' time. It's been suggested that the reason he was doing this was to show the British that the IRA were ready to fight and that he wanted to gain more popularity with the men on the ground. He knew Collins and Richard Mulcahy had more control over the army and this was probably something that worried him. Whatever his reasoning, it put the president out of contact at a moment when time was of the essence and things were reaching a critical point. This also further reinforces the idea that Dev didn't think this was the end game. He was waiting for the talks to break down and then he would come in and reach a solution. As we go on, well, we'll see how well that worked for him. The next day, Sunday the 4th, the delegates had a meeting planned with Lloyd George at 5pm. Yet, as historian Packenham describes, in London it was found impossible to achieve an agreed recollection of what had been decided. They even argued over the exact wording of Dev's new oath. But Barton, Gavin Duffy and Childers convinced Griffith to stick to what Dev and the cabinet wanted. They would go back into the British with external association and with Dev's new version of the oath to try and sweeten the deal. Not everyone agreed with this plan of action and Collins full-on refused to attend the meeting with Lloyd George, with Duggan following suit. Collins would later explain that I had, in my own estimation, argued fully all points. Barton described the situation like this. 
there was a difference of opinion between us as to what the British would agree to, and Collins objected to our going back again with proposals which he claimed the British had already turned down. Gavin Duffy and I thought more could be gained if we pressed further. Griffith agreed to accompany us, but Collins refused. Duggan also refused. Whatever Collins decided, Duggan always agreed with. Failure was foredoomed. What a great word. To succeed, our case would have to have been pressed with vigour by all five of us. I kind of find that last point hard to believe, especially considering this was the fifth time that Dev had sent the delegates back to Lloyd George with the idea of external association. Now, some argue that Collins was just fed up and too annoyed to sit in a pointless meeting with one historian describing this decision as bizarre, even childish. But others theorise that he had a bit more of a political reason for not attending. By staying away from a meeting that he believed would anger the British and go nowhere, he provided Lloyd George with an out. If they had followed Barton's lead and all vigorously backed external association, Lloyd George would have had no choice but to break off the talks. But the fact Collins wasn't there, well, that provided some wiggle room. Lloyd George might just see it as a signal that Collins was open to a compromise. Instead of heading to the meeting, Collins wrote to Kitty Kiernan, saying, I dislike this place intensely on a Sunday. Everything so quiet and still and so drearily dull. The outlook now is not inviting. Through smoky, grimy windows to a drab square. Very, very unpleasant indeed. Different from our own places. But then there's a job to be done. And for the moment, here is the place. And that's that. The atmosphere within the meeting quickly turned just as gloomy as Collins's view of London. Attending the meeting was Griffith, Barton and Gavin Duffy on the Irish side, with Childers left out in the hall, and Lloyd George, Birkenhead and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Robert Horne, on the British side. Griffith kicked off by attacking the British on their stance on Ulster, going back to his now familiar riff on the idea of Ireland's essential unity. He made the case that he had agreed to a boundary commission, and he wanted Craig to do the same. Remember, Griffith was just trying desperately to cause a break in negotiations over Ulster. Lord George shot down the idea of a letter from Craig, though, and after a brief recess to look over the Irish stance in private, he returned, declaring, The Irish proposals were wholly inadmissible. We might have considered some form in the change of the oath, but this was a refusal 
to enter the empire and accept the common bond of the crown. They were but the same proposals which had already been discussed and rejected. He then shouted, If this was your last word, your answer meant war. The room was silent. Griffith then describes how Lloyd George asked what was the difficulty of going into the empire like Canada. And this is where things went downhill fast, with Gavin Duffy making a major tactical error. His reply to Lloyd George was, The Irish should be as closely associated with Britain as the Dominions, such as Canada, in the large matters, and more so in the matters of defence. But our difficulty is coming within the empire, given all that has happened in the past. And that right there might have been the ball game. By acknowledging the difficulty of coming within the empire, Gavin Duffy ruined any chance of a break over Ulster. And instead forced the Irish into a situation where they were breaking over oath. He later explained to the doll that Lord George broke with us on the empire and broke definitively, subject to confirmation by his cabinet the next morning. It might have been, or it might not have been, a bluff. Duggan, in the same doll meeting, replied, we put up the proposals that the cabinet said we should put up. They were turned down and had been two or three times previously. We told the cabinet they would be turned down, but we carried out their instructions. Back in the room, Lloyd George snapped at Gavin Duffy. In that case, it is war. And the British stormed out. Now this might sound familiar to you. Another meeting where the Irish had come with a proposal, the British had gotten mad, Lloyd George said war was coming, and he stormed out. We've heard this already, over and over again. And it is hard to know whether or not Lloyd George was bluffing. And historians argue this point all the time. But all we can say is that for the men in the room, things felt especially dire. As the Irish left the room, Gavin Duffy whispered to Childers, Say, Finney, while Barton, chatting to Griffith, said, Well, I admire the way you stuck like a bulldog to the Ulster issue. It may all be for the best. Griffith, however, was furious. He tore into Gavin Duffy for what he saw as a huge misstep. And later that night, Around 1.30am, Tom Jones, Lloyd George's secretary, met with Griffith, and we get a sense of how despondent and angry Griffith was at this point. I saw Arthur Griffith at midnight for an hour alone. He was labouring under a deep sense of the crisis and spoke throughout with the greatest of earnestness and unusual emotion one was bound to feel 
that to break him would be infinitely tragic. Griffith wasn't the only one who was unhappy. A writer for the Freeman's Journal wrote, Journalists who have been accustomed to visit Downing Street almost daily for years past informed me that they never remember seeing so much depression within the portals of number 10 as prevailed last night. But Collins had been right, and his absence gave Lloyd George the wiggle room that was needed. In his meeting with Jones, Griffith laid out the situation. Myself and Collins have been completely won over to believe in Lloyd George's desire for peace. But our Dublin colleagues have not. We have been told that we have to surrender much on the King and Association and have got nothing to offer the doll in return. Can you not get from Craig a conditional recognition, however shadowy, of Irish national unity in return for the acceptance of the Empire by Sinn Féin? Will you help us get peace? He continued saying that for anything to work, Lloyd George needed to convince Collins and then quote, the gunmen will follow. It was therefore agreed that Collins and Lloyd George would meet the next morning. Jones, interestingly, finished off his report to Lloyd George that night with a plea of his own, writing, Peace with Ireland is worth that effort with Craig. War is failure, at home and at Washington. Next episode, we'll see what happened on Monday 5th and watch as the delegates work long into the early hours of Tuesday morning when they will finally sign, for better or for worse, the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. You can also support the show, buy merch, and get in touch all through our website, thehistoryofireland.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole. Additional research and fact-checking by Robert Babington, music by Liam Doyle, and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Coogan Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.